The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Good morning and a blessed Sunday to you. This is the Lord's Day that He has made. And this morning, uh, it's going to be a simple breakfast, orange juice, some outstanding moments coffee and then we have uh, brown sugar bacon we have uh, it's brown sugar and espresso bacon we have eggs the scramble that's the only way I can make them and of course some avocado now those of you from avocado land uh, that avocado has been there a while but it is some of the best avocado you've ever had in these parts. Welcome, David. Join me. Get some food. Dig in. Lord, we thank you so much for the food that you provide for your people, the bread of heaven, which you have sent down to us. We pray that we would feast on that this morning. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, the bacon, the juice, we're off to a good start. I'm now up to section four, which is how Christ regulates the worship in his church. And to me, this is by far the most interesting of all the studies I've been doing, to me personally, and what I've discovered here about New Testament worship, which I may say after, you know, Westminster Seminary, what, what else is there left to be said after of, of the Bible if you've been there? Um, and all that they taught me about worship and the doctrine of the church and so forth. Um, going into the New Testament and asking a real simple question. What did they do? How did they describe it? What did they tell you to do? And the answer is unbelievably simple. You know, the reason why the regulative principle of worship was developed was, was not because they found it written in Scripture. It simply isn't there. I mean, written. It, it may be a true doctrine, but it's not there. It was done because in the Catholic Church there was so much stuff that had built up over the years, like 1,500 years, that they wanted to find an objective rule, a principle. So they said if it's not commanded, it's forbidden. And that was their objective principle because they didn't want to go into it and say, well, we think this and we think that. So what they did is they invented a rational principle, much like the principle of do all things decently in order. That is actually written in what Paul said to the Corinthians, and we'll see what he, when and where he actually said it, has almost nothing to do with Scottish rationalism. But they, they wanted objective principles so they could say, it's not that we have anything personal against this or that thing that you're doing for worship. It just, it isn't, a, it isn't commanded, so it must be forbidden. And you just, that just can't be found anywhere in the scriptures, really. So, I want to summarize where we've been so far in the doctrine of the church. First of all, the beginning, uh, Jesus Christ, the king and the head of the church. 
The beginning of all government is the governor, Jesus Christ. In this regard, what we have to say here in that section is in full accord with the beginning of almost any document concerning government of any sort, but certainly Christian government, until about 1850 when things started to change. Around 1850, the debate on the source of governmental authority between Pentheus and Bacchus, for those of you who are up on your Euripides, swung back into the favor of Pentheus, who says the source of order and authority in the world, in the city, which is the world for the Greeks, uh, is the king. And it was his job to get all this Bacchus worship out of town, very disorderly. Now, you might remember the climax of that debate in the Bacchae, that's Euripides' tragedy. Bacchus says to Pentheus something that Jesus Christ, the king of the earth, the king of creation, thought significant enough to make his own introductory words to Saul of Tarsus the first time he spoke to him on the road to Damascus. He wanted to establish with Saul what, what Bacchus wanted to establish with Pentheus, and that is authority for the law, for rules, for right and wrong, for the way things ought to be, for society, for anything you can think of that has to do with order, comes from the transcendent divine. And so Jesus picked the words of Bacchus to introduce himself to Saul of Tarsus. It could be one of the reasons why Saul said, uh, who are you? Aside from the fact that he was sitting on his butt next to his donkey. So, what were the words you're, you're asking? It's, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Why are you kicking against the goads? A man can't fight against God. Jesus was actually quoting Euripides at that point. And it's something to keep in mind for anyone who would govern any aspect of creation, from nation to family to church to business to club. Now, the second section of this document uh, is the Word of God ordains, defines, sanctifies, and protects his congregation. That is to say, the Word of God is sufficient without human tribunals, courts, and so forth, to sift the hearts of men. See, the, the problem with human tribunals and courts, made up of men who are set apart in the church with special powers to rule over their subjects, is that they lack sufficient power. It only looks like they have a lot of power because they can tell you what they can what to do. They, they can bind your conscience even though they tell you, you they can't. That's actually what they do. To be found guilty of contumacy means that you are guilty of not doing what they told you to do. That's what contumacy means. Contumacy is you saying, no, you can't tell me what to do. But even though, of course, they can't bind your conscience, they can't find you guilty of contumacy, someday that dis that problem is going to be sufficiently in their mind that they're going to want to do something about it, but it, it is no time soon. And so the problem with these courts is they lack sufficient power. They only have the appearance of power, and therefore they distract the church and the elders from the true source of God's work in the earth, namely his law word written on the heart of his people by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's the word of God that will, through the march of time, transform his people. The only schism that's of any value in the church is not in getting this or that doctrine correct or perfected. It is in rejecting the scriptures as the final court of appeal. When somebody does that, we're not just arguing over what it means, but that it's finally authoritative. That's a rejection of the only possibility any of us have of future correction, which is necessary because at each point, God's people see through a glass darkly. We do today. We did back in 300 when they were putting together the, the doctrine of the Trinity. The final court of appeal then, this is chapter 3, 
The final court of appeal is to look at the significance of the incarnation. Jesus Christ himself demonstrates that the law of God can be written on the heart of a man and he becomes the new Adam for his people. Then in his atonement, what he does is he finds his people just, he makes them righteous, and then he makes them new creatures, giving them hearts of flesh to have God's law written on it. This isn't some utopian dream, this is just average, everyday New Testament teaching. Is demonstrated in Christ. Then the significance of the ascension is that Jesus Christ right now rules immediately through all the earth through his people and he rules from heaven over the transformation of the wor world through his people. And finally the significance of Pentecost is that God dwells in each person, man, woman, and child, writing his law on each heart, transforming them individually as a body and the world around them from one degree of glory to another. Again, basic Christian doctrine sets each Christian, from the least of them to the greatest, as equal in respect to any ability to rule over the other. That is to say, any authority. I shouldn't say ability. People who are better at ruling are better at it. But I'm talking about the intrinsic authority to rule. There's no laying on of hands that can give somebody more power than the most insignificant member of your church has in Jesus Christ. That is the significance of the doctrine of the priesthood of all God's people, the priesthood of the saints. It means there is no special class. Calling for, and therefore, he calls for mutual submission and recognizing that each will be held responsible for their own understanding of God's word and their judgment on how to apply it. There's no other court or authority, elder, governor, wife, husband, or emperor who can either mediate, that is, give you grace if you lack it, or control the grace, you know, go to them and you can get some, uh, to the individual, or if the individual agrees with them and they are wrong, there's no other authority that can atone for that error. Your elder is not going to stand up in heaven pleading before the throne of grace, saying, I know I got it wrong on this point, and, and, and this poor child believed me. Please don't hold that false belief against them. Or I told them to do something, and they obeyed me. Therefore, don't... There's, there's no elder pleading before you before the throne of grace for crying out loud. You're standing there naked on your own. And that's why you are the final judge for yourself. And you'll be held accountable. Not a final judge in the sense that anything you say is correct, or it's good for you, it's good. It's that... God judges you, and therefore, I don't have to worry about judging you. You don't have to worry about judging me. The New Testament makes no provision for a special priesthood, much less for elders engaging in the special judicial task which the believer has no authority to engage in. The authority of those who rule in the church is spiritual. It's not administrative. Now, every book of church orders says that, um, but they don't divide divine a form of government that actually enacts that. So, how does the church grow? Let me cleanse the palate. Jesus Christ, during his ministry, and at one, when he was physically present, he was the head of the church, physically present. Under his tenure, he established only two organizational guidelines. Don't rule like the Gentiles, who rule through organizational authority structures by putting the great ones in charge to rule over the lesser ones. 
Instead, like Jesus is principle two, rule with nothing more than the human power of a servant. Humanly speaking, all your elder can do to you, or you can do to your elder, is serve him. That's your power. You can argue with him. You can discuss things with him. Let God alone uphold your word, not your organization or its ordaining powers. The entire budget of the Church of Jesus Christ, when he was in charge, fit into a bag. They even called it the bag. That meant the money bag. They met wherever they could find room to accommodate them. They put somebody in charge of the bag, who is not only untrustworthy, but in time would, would uh, betray them. Okay, so there's nothing sacred about the church budget that requires this huge meeting to be sure that it's all done right. If it can't, if it, if it can't fit into the bag, there's a real question of what you're doing with it. There is no administrative overhead, no property to be held in a corporate trust, no administrators at all. The disciples went on their own, then focused entirely on the ministry of the word, prayer, and example. That's thrown in there from... Uh, from 1 Peter 5, 3, I believe. That is, discipleship is the key word, not discipline. And one of the things you'll notice is, though the Reformed, and God bless John Calvin, will say the Church of Jesus Christ is where discipline, where the worship is properly conducted and discipline is properly carried out, that's not found in the New Testament. It's, it's a nice idea. Uh, but in the New Testament, the key word is discipleship, and the whole nature of discipleship is fundamentally different from exercising um, discipline. Now, the minute there might be administrative responsibilities in the book of Acts, they immediately pass them off to young spiritual people. The gatherings fit the size of whatever room, courtyard, street, or alley, or field could contain. And when the group got large enough, apparently they divided because they went from house to house. It was normal. It was not structured. Uh, each shepherd with his flock. That, that structure is found nowhere in the New Testament, though those who were elders are called shepherds, and the people are referred to as a flock. But what you lack is any of the disciplinary aspects of shepherding mentioned in the Bible. And you could say, well, it's assumed in the image. Is it? Yes, precisely. You must assume it. You can't find it there. And so this should be the pattern of the church. Division is normal. A structure that would accommodate regular division, whatever that structure, organizational structure might be, on doctrinal, practical grounds, which might come up without bitterness. There's no need of false authoritarian form of unity. All the authoritarian does is it holds everybody together and creates physical assets, so nobody wants to leave the building, the budget, all the good things that can be done. It's better than nothing. Those things don't exist to hold the church together. You're either united in Christ or you're scattered like sheep on the hillside. And the unity has to come from what the Holy Spirit is doing in the heart. It has to come from the Spirit. And that's why Jesus said, those who worship me worship in spirit and in truth. All that other foo-for-ah is only what you do to hide the fact that the real unity of the Spirit isn't there. You merely have some external examples. Because in time, the Word of God would shape his people to fit his will and establish the true unity of Ephesians 1 and John 17. All that is by way of introduction. We're now at section five. Christ regulates his worship. The Last Supper and the events of the upper room were the last worship service of the Old Covenant, and they were the first worship service of the New Covenant. They grew organically out of the highest feast of the Hebrew liturgical calendar, the Passover. 
In this service, Jesus transformed the shadows of the memory of Israel's deliverance from slavery into the New Testament and the New Covenant worship of God's people who live in reality. We're the ones who cast the shadows, what Jesus technically is, but in Christ, we're the ones who cast the shadows. Free men and women delivered from slavery to all authority in heaven and earth to go disciple the nations. But his law is written on our hearts, not on a stone out there that we have to go read. Now in this feast, it was his blood that was about to be sprinkled on the lintel and the door frames of the house of God, which is what his people are. And that is what Jesus was commemorating, his blood sacrificed for you. The events of the Last Supper in the upper room are the guide which regulate Christian worship, not by slavish ritual. When you follow rituals, you have to really take seriously what the second commandment says, and we'll be going into the second commandment later. It's not by slavish ritual, but the regulation that Christ puts on his people in the upper room is how God's people dwell with God and each other in the body of Christ. Remember, God was right there. Jesus was lying down on a sofa in their midst. The corporate gatherings of God's people reflect the things that Jesus and the apostles found important, important enough to guide their worship, to guide their fellowship. And these have got to be the regular principles of worship, not an abstract, arbitrary idea thought of 1,700 years later. Yeah, 1,500 years later. The second commandment says, You shall have no other gods before me. No, excuse me. <laughs> the first commandment says you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment says you shall not make any graven image. That is, you shall not take from anything that is created and turn it into something that creates a relationship, a unity, a, a, a channeling. A priest, shall we say, between God and you. It's a general principle of worship which we find in its purest form in the upper room. At that last supper, and memorialized in all Christian worship. See if that light helps at all. Yeah, I hate it. No method of worship. Okay, the first principle coming from the second commandment, make no graven images. No method of worship in and of itself, no order of worship, no ritual, pleases God or forces his blessing or his presence. There's nothing you can do to get God to be present with you. God the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth, not impressive or unimpressive. In other words, not high church, low church. Uh, technique and form fit only to become an idol of ritual. Almost any form of worship that does not incorporate sin can please God. But no form of worship requires his blessing, even if, he's, if he has blessed them in the past, even if they're otherwise beyond objections, legitimate things to do. Nothing can compel God's blessing. He's looking for each person to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. No form of worship lacking the spirit and truth from the heart of the worshiper can be acceptable no matter how good it is. Some ways of worshiping, though blessed in the past, will not continue in God's blessing. I mean, just in the Bible, I can think of three of them. Samuel, worshiping in the high places. No comment on that, but that became the theme of the rest of the, of the historical books of the, of the Old Testament. 
or Abraham's willingness to engage in human sacrifice. He took his son, his only son. Or in a return to Mosaic Temple and purification system. None of these are things that now can function as ways for you to find healing and approach to God, absolution of sins, and worship. So the general application of the second commandment to worship was that Jesus was not deterred by, or nor did he forbid any distraction or possibility that someone would fail to grasp what he said, or through a distraction, miss what God had planned for him to grasp. Well, it seems radical to you, and you might even think, well, so what? So I'm going to give you a few examples. The biggest one is the Lord's Supper itself. There was so much lack of focus in that discussion going around the upper room that they didn't even get who was going to betray him when he told them directly who it was going to be. I know that you have read the stories and you've sat there thinking, how did they miss this? Were they stupid? Were they No. Have you ever been in a room full of really good friends all talking at once about something that's really important and they're not just going to wait as if it's, a, if, if it's a Jesus movie where you get the transcendence of Jesus by this... And then Jesus says something or does something or something. That's not what actually happened. That's a movie version, like playing music. Uh, is a movie version trying to recreate a reality. The reality is they all start talking at once and nobody was paying attention to what Jesus actually said. And that's how he can point out Judas, send him out to do something. And John says, well, maybe he thought he was going to like give some money to the poor. Right, at, at 10 o'clock at night? So not only that, there's about three chapters worth of material, four maybe, that John only recorded from that very upper room service. None of the rest of them got it. And also John apparently missed the argument over who was the greatest. He had some material in there dealing with who was the greatest, but, but he didn't have that in there. It just didn't concern Jesus. He knew the right people would get the right information and do the right thing with it, or get the right information so that somebody coming along later can do the right thing with it. So too, Jesus was not deterred or bothered by the lack of focus in his listeners, whether it was the crying children during a sermon or arguing disciples carrying on and not paying a bit of attention to him, even on the night of his betrayal and death. I mean, that can't get any... There is no more important moment in the history of the church, certainly not in your worship service this morning, that's more important than paying attention to Jesus when he says, one of you will betray me. And yet they didn't. And it didn't bother him. He went right on got Judas on, on his way and out the door after Judas had taken the Lord's Supper by the way with him. There was no fencing at the table either. Jesus was confident that the Holy Spirit and his word would penetrate as necessary to accomplish his will in the earth in his father's time. This too should be the confidence of God's leaders and people who should refrain from creating artificial aids to worship such as a stage, lighting, fixed seating, enforced silence, isolating one paid leader who controls or performs all the elements of worship and teaching. Somebody's going to say, well, how about musical instruments? Musical instruments, if you know, only rules governing musical in instruments come from people, actually, these rules only come from people who literally know nothing about the nature of art. When an artist draws something, when my wife creates a creation as a chef, 
uh, when a musician creates a song, that's their, that's them. That's an extension of them. So for an artist to play on their their zither or their piano or orchestra or whatever, you're not looking at someone is playing an instrument. You're looking at someone, it's really more like a cyborg. You're looking at someone for whom this thing extends the ability of how they can express and transform the world around them. So no, I don't have a bit of problem with, with uh, instruments and music. And those who do, literally, I will say, are ignorant of what art is. Now these are just a few uh, <clears throat> fixed seating, enforced silence, isolating one paid leader who controls or performs all the elements of worship and teaching. These are a few of the time-honored examples of enforcing interest and focus to avoid distraction. And most of us, and most of us, truth be told, let me get this back up here. Let's try that again. And most of us, <clears throat> truth be told, want all those aids to our attention. We don't want the distracting babies. We don't want the fidgety old men and women. Eh, what did you say, Ethel? Shh, we're in church. We don't want anything to distract. We want the best speaker to be standing up there and up on a platform, and we, we don't want someone else up there and so forth. <clears throat> well, that's okay. It's not what Jesus wanted. In short, nothing should be set up that would replace a person's desire, your desire from the heart, to listen, engage, and even lead in the events comprising the regular gathering of God's people. Nothing should be preventing that, except your perception of the body of Christ and what's the appropriate thing to do at this point. That's decently in an order. The position people are in may be improved by this or that setup, whether orderly rows or random movable chairs or no seating at all. But even though different seating formats might be more conducive to different outcomes, none of them guarantees or make impossible a godly outcome. Jesus himself was lying around on a low eight-inch couch for a good bit of that last worship service in the upper room, including the institution of the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Can you picture your pastor lying down and saying, this, this is my body that is, you know, as our Lord said on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body. Can you imagine him lying down on the floor as he says that? It didn't bother God. It bothers us. The rest of his disciples were sprawling there with him, one so disorderly as to be lying with his head on Jesus' chest. At a critical point in the meeting, John was receiving hand signals frantically from Peter to ask Jesus who was going to betray him. You have to picture this to grasp what doesn't matter to God when it comes to Christian worship and fellowship. A room full of people reclining, all lying around, all shouting at once, is it I, is it I? John, his face six inches away from the Lord of the Universe's face, as his head lay on his chest, asking him, uh, Jesus, who will betray you? This is not to show the congregation the best position to be in. This isn't setting a form for a ritual or to advocate noise and confusion, but rather to show the utter irrelevance in Jesus' estimation of the position or demeanor of those involved in any gathering, whether in the upper room 
throughout his ministry, or even out on the street where people are mocking him. <clears throat> Jesus marked unexpected events in his teaching and worship by seizing the opportunity, not by careful ritual exclusion of the possibility of interruption. That's what unexpected things are in the course of worship, opportunities for ministry. Not, not oh, you kept me from being able to focus. Ah, you know what, if you can't focus, you need to get on your face for God about that issue. Don't go blaming the crying baby. That's God's plan for the future. You, by complaining about the God, crying baby, are God's plan for the past. You may as well go out and bury yourself. Let the dead bury the dead. Now, Jesus was most comfortable with an environment that was relaxed in general, so people would focus on what seemed to them important when there was something of sufficient importance to make their attention worth their while. Whatever Christians do in their meetings that they think needs everyone's attention needs to be something worthy of their attention in and of itself, not artificially placed on the stage to give the appearance of worth, paid a salary so that we know he's valuable. <clears throat> we need to realize that God himself was not bothered when his friends, the disciples, didn't pay attention and miss things. He was in whatever he might have been saying. So too, Christian worship should not be formed around artificial times of externally imposed, totally undistracted attention, as if this is a value in and of itself to draw his people nearer to God. It isn't. It simply is a value to help people who aren't really wanting to draw near to God to draw near anyway, because, I mean, everybody's quiet. It's still it's silent prayer. May as well pray if I can keep from thinking about something else. The reality is, like that night, we, they, are the temple of God, and God is in their midst. The church of Jesus Christ is the holy of holies. Your heart is the holy of holies. As God draws your attention, as people perceive value in something happening, they should focus on it. And if what is said or sung or prayed or prophesied or disputed or rebuked or eaten or drunk is sufficiently important as many people will stop what they are doing and listen or participate appropriately as need to do so. This is, by the way, gives an environment in which true leadership rises naturally to the top. They are the ones whose activity stops people's mouths and arrests their attention. The servant is not greater than the master, even when it comes to designing worship. Now, somebody out there is going to be saying, Oh, wait a second. I mean, how about the charlatan? How about the uh, the buffoon, the the one who manipulates the people and tricks them? You know, like those those false apostles coming to Corinth that Paul was having to deal with. How are they dealt with? Quite simply, if the elders have done their job, part of their job is is charlatan sniffing, spotting false apostles, spotting false leaders, spotting people who lead from pride instead of humility, spotting it in the teachers and rulers in the church who lead from pride instead of humility. It is a freedom of ideas and spiritual values that God has designed for his people in all they do, not merely in economics. This is how it works in worship and fellowship. It does not improve the situation to impose an artificial order from the top down, which only confuses the understanding of the forces and issues that are truly at work and can only lead to bad decisions in worship just like in economics, it leads to bad decisions in the marketplace when something other than God's law is used to regulate it. Now, this same tenor should mark true worship, that it is only as good as the heart of those involved is able to focus and attend to it. 
It is not improved by external rules, rituals, and constraints and special actors that attempt to coerce that focus, sometimes through the sheer power of their oratory. <clears throat> One of the things I like about this medium is there's no power in the oratory, that's for sure. Such an environment of fellowship, worship, teaching that is not cramped by time constraints promotes a natural resistance to making the strength and success of the church depend on the ability of organizers to organizers and controllers to control and missionaries to mission and so forth. <clears throat> Such worship does not guarantee either the spirit or the truth <clears throat> when it's done through the organization. I'm not saying spirit can't work through such things. I'm just saying it doesn't guarantee it and very often fights against it and the success of the spirit is in spite of them, not through them. The form of what's going on in, in worship resists the reduction of faith to a ritual which violates the second commandment and by design, that is the worship service by design of the new covenant, resists the rise of a priestly elder elite and through raising the level of the congregation to that of being fully mature in Christ, it also provides the best protection against being swept away by every wind of doctrine. The pastor doesn't have to worry that somebody sneaks in and poisons half the congregation before he can get around to confronting him. The pastor is not the knight on white in white armor, silver armor on a white horse, to protect the congregation. The congregation will eat that charlatan for lunch. This said, nothing can overcome the immature desire of a congregation to be led by those who slap their faces, as Paul pointed out, and put a ring in their noses as a sign of submission to their authority in the church. This is how the immature are led, this is how the immature need to be led, and this is how the church will be led until the time comes that you grow up. It's crucial to understand the second commandment here in worship. It is not that church is doing it wrong today, Here's a set of rules. Do it my way so God can finally bless us. Do it my way so you can have meaningful worship. It's not that at all. Adopting this or that structure will not make worship or the gathering or the teaching pleasing to God. Rather, this is a discussion of how the surroundings of the gathering reflect, re reflect the freedom the second command gives you if you just obey it, or the bondage you fall into if you disobey the second command and try to prove on it and create ritual violations of your worship. The regulative principle we find in the upper room is very simple. Don't get hung up on the petty stuff. Food is one aspect of the upper room and of the church meeting in Acts, which is consistent with all old covenant worship from the food offered at creation to man. Just go read all those, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth verses. You know, like Most of the verses where Paul, Paul, uh, God is, is commissioning Adam and Eve deal with the food they can eat. And then the next time you run into two fruit trees in the heart of the garden to seal their covenant with God. And from there, on to the marriage feast of the Lamb at the end of the story. See, fellowship with God revolves around food. Almost every time God's meeting with anybody, they're, they're eating something. And in some cases, they're going out there. I mean, just think of how long it took Abraham to say, hey, you want to eat? And the angel of the Lord says, yes. So he says, okay, wait a sec, bro. He goes running out. He has to find the fatted calf. He has to kill the cat fatted calf. He has to gut the fatted calf. He has to carve the fatted calf up. He has to build a fire. He has to put the fatted calf on the fire, roast it on a spit, however they did it, boil it, whatever they did to it. And then once that's all, how many hours are we talking about? Here's God sitting in the tent. Uh, supper ready yet? Just a minute, God, just a minute. Be right with you. Food is pretty important. 
Fellowship with God revolved around food. Sacrificing to God revolved around food. What do you think they did with the sacrifice after they killed it? Whatever the ritual or teaching led by an expert that might be involved, it did not get in the way of eating together. Whatever all that other stuff was. The characteristics of their service of worship were gather with everyone else who knows Jesus and eat a meal. That's what the New Covenant did. New, New Testament worship did, just like they did all through the Old Testament. In that environment, you know, they're at the meal, work through whatever needs working out. Pray, sing, worship, teach, prophesy, rebuke, exhort, encourage, love everyone there. Nobody should go out of that room not being hugged at least 30, 40 times. And if needed, separate out a new congregation. The room could be filled with comfortable chairs, possibly recliners like Jesus used. That can be pulled in any size grouping as needed from two or three to the whole group at once to be addressed or sung to by one person. The very flexibility helps prevent the idea that we are here so only one person can turn himself into the only person they need to listen to. Remember, you can stop listening to anybody you want to. Not even Jesus himself organized by forcing anyone to listen or to follow. And there's some interesting conversations I've had with people who say, well, Jesus stood at the front of the group. Jesus had everybody listening. No, he didn't have everybody listening to him. I'll give you a couple of examples. <clears throat> In Mark 10, 17 through 27, uh, Jesus sends away the rich young ruler. He's not interested in listening to Jesus. In John 6, just about all his disciples leave him after he, after he gives that wonderful evangelical discourse on, you got to eat my body, drink my blood. And that kept offending him, so he kept saying it in about six different ways. And they left. This was a hard saying. In John uh, 1, 2 through 19, talks about people who go out from among us because they never were of us. Jesus set things up so that if you don't want to be there, don't let the screen door hit you in the fanny on the way out. We love you, bro. We'll hug you all the way out. But we're not going to sit here saying, shh, be quiet, be still. As long as you're in the house of God, you be silent. and Keep your damn baby somewhere else. <clears throat> That's not Jesus at all. At some point while eating, stop and remember that last night, Jesus breaking the bread and drinking the wine of the new covenant, inviting his family to eat and to drink with him at his table until he comes. It's God's table, not the church's. It's not the elders' table. You know, it's funny, elders say that every time they do communion, this is the table of the Lord. And then they sit there as if they're the ones who keep people from profaning it. It's even called in Presbyterian circles, fencing the table. Jesus didn't even fence the table from, from Judas. If Jesus can let Judas in, just trust Paul when he says, you know, some of you by eating unworthily have died. Some of you are sick. God can take care of his table, Uzziah. You don't need to go grabbing the altar because it's, 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 it's shaking on the, uh, you know, the oxen have stumbled. You don't need to do that. This is not a ritual needing correct performance by the right people to be a blessing. It is a regular practice that goes naturally with the meal and should be repeated in faith to teach the purpose of the meal and the grace in remembering the spiritual reality of the moment. It is an opportunity to reflect on our sins and need for the righteousness of Christ. What it absolutely is not is an opportunity to have some priest mediate grace through the elements. And I'm not talking to the Catholics here. I'm talking to the, to the, um, to the Presbyterians. So though everyone is encouraged to examine themselves, the end result is not to decide whether or not to partake. If you're a Christian, this is your meal you eat. 
but rather to partake in faith of whatever blessing or judgment God has in store at his table for each of his children, for you and for me. The church invites those who are commanded by God to come to him, which is all who call on the name of the Lord, and those unable on their own to get there. Maybe they have to have a hole open in the roof and be let down. But those are commanded to come also, and those unable on their own to come. He commands not to forbid them, but to provide for them, his little ones, the lame, the halt, the blind, the mentally handicapped, the elderly, and the children. They are in God's family, and they belong to him at his feast. Instructive in this is go check out what the Old Covenant says about the Feast of Tithing. Leave that for your homework. The role of the elders in this whole process at Corinth is most noticeable by the fact that when Paul is writing those letters to the Corinthians, there is no role for the elders. Every problem there is not solved with an elder. Yet the story of the drunks of Corinth is a flagship passage used to defend the authority of elders to control the Lord's table, which they inevitably turn into a ritual by their seizure of power over it. Let it not be so among you, Jesus said. That's exactly what he told him not to do. Anything that's not a ritual is useless to a priest and those who claim priestly powers, even though like the like the uh, shy girl at a party, oh, no, 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 I, I couldn't, I couldn't. But if you insist, you're all. <clears throat> Throughout the evening or any other time, the church gathers for fellowship, for that matter. The issues of life are discussed privately and where appropriate corporately. There is singing and music, instruments for the gifted. People will sing to others, say some hard things, sometimes personally and privately, other times corporately. When they work it out, like then they work it out like iron, sharpening iron, even needing to get everyone's attention so something serious can have the wisdom and judgment of all God's people. Everyone is helping each other sort through all the issues of life. Maybe somebody is going to be rebuked and cast out for rejecting the congregation, not the judgment of the elders, rejecting the congregation. Everyone is helping each other sort through these things, learning, maturity, handling sin, error, philosophical disputes, offense, righteousness, blessing. They're doing it like mature adults, confident in the word and judgment of God, not petulant children, insecure in all their ways, and needing to force their way on everybody else just to be sure that you're orthodox and correct. It's real. Then as any group, there are some who are gifted at explaining things or praying for people or singing or healing or speaking a word of wisdom or knowledge. And at some point, everyone listens to them, explain things or pray and sing or lay bare their hearts. It might even be an argument that everyone listened to. There might be some Sundays that, nobody, that everyone doesn't listen to one person. It all takes about two or three hours and then they clean up. It's going to happen again, so there's no urgency in the entire service for an agenda. Now read through the accounts of the Last Supper. See if this is how Jesus regulated it. Diligently search the writings of his disciples, not his disciplinarians, his disciples, to see if they ran the church any other way. Now, as the group grows, it naturally divides and new groups start up. It would not be wrong to build a meeting house. But administration of the petty can consume God's people. Remember, it's not wrong that down the street there's an idol, but you do have to be very careful that you don't end up visiting to go see it. With that warning, no matter what the size of the meeting room or its amenities or how, it's a, or how, how you got it, at some point, by God's grace, there must be division for new groups to begin or something terrible will have happened. 
the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, the candlestick of Revelation 2-3, will have been quenched, and this branch of God's people will therefore have been cut off. It will have stopped filling the earth, subduing it, and discipling the nations. This should drive people to their needs, knees, <laughs> to their needs, too. This should uh, cause them to fall on their faces, humiliated at their rank hypocrisy that they call themselves disciples of Jesus Christ. And here, they are so uninterested in what is going on in their congregation that they're not speaking of it and opening up their hearts. It's not spilling over. They become Presbyterians. Sometimes this decision, d division is not happy or friendly since it could revolve around serious disagreements concerning morality, doctrine, philosophy, theology, uh, ministry. Uh, in this case, the division may be a painful one. Each side convinced that the other side is in error or perhaps engaged in sin. But in Christ, there is the charity that God will correct the errant. In Christ, there is a humility that I may be the one needing correction and healing. It is the church's task to love and pray for them, not hate and resent them or fear that they will unsettle the faithful. Remember, the presupposition of the church of Jesus Christ is the elders have done their job. Everyone is mature, not being blown around by, by winds of doctrine. So you don't have to be afraid that when there's a serious disagreement in the church, and it's over the interpretation of Scripture, it's not over somebody says, well, I don't care what the Bible says, this is the way it is. That is true schism. There's no future for that. Okay, As long as that's what's going on, uh, they have the opportunity to launch a new congregation and start a new fellowship, because you're doing it all the time anyway, that separates out the sides in the dispute and awaits God's final judgment, which may come a year, a hundred, or even a thousand years hence. In the meantime, they pray for each other, and they have faith that God's word will winnow the chaff and polish the kernel. The expectation is that division will be a normal aspect of the life of the church as it grows to fill the earth. All power in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. In fact, this commonplace division to grow is why dividing for other reasons will not seem harmful or significant to the message, the truth, or the witness of the church, but rather be seen as a positive witness to God's ability to winnow out his people and his truth free of rancor, bitterness, and strife. God's word can handle that, okay? You get all that stuff when you start doing authoritarian leadership. Now you're challenging the leader, quite aside from whether or not you're challenging the truth. The ministry of God's people gathering creates a space where all may come, bringing everyone they meet. There they gather people who one day, one person, one experience at a time, change the world. They don't come to a lecture or a special leader. They come to the people of God who are changed. There may be lecturers and special leaders in there, but they're coming to the people of God. They're coming to the house of God. They're coming to the temple of God. That's, that's you, his people. When they talk to you, when a stranger, when anybody talks to you, he is approaching the Holy of Holies because Jesus Christ dwells in your heart. They come to eat. They come to talk and listen with people who discover ways to make it better for each other. They understand service because they understand how God's law and grace meet and kiss in the cross, which now defines their life. Their leaders aren't spiritual bigwigs, SBWs, who need support, though they may help support them. Leaders are just the people the congregation recognizes as the best at meeting needs by serving, not the best at running things and keeping everyone in a straight line. It's a disaster when you make those people the leaders. <clears throat> They're power crazy. There is the understanding 
and trust of Jesus' word and the experience. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. The reason leaders um, are not the best at running things and keeping everyone in a straight line is because there is this understanding trust of Jesus' word. It shall not be so among you. And the experience of 2,000 years of rejecting his word and choosing the greatest to rule over us, which proves that authoritarian leadership to function fosters perpetual childhood. And that's why people keep saying, well, if we do it your way, all the, all the congregation is going to be swept away by error. Well, no, it's because we've done it your way that the congregation is that weak. If you do it God's way, not my way, you do it God's way, that congregation is going to be swept away by anything. And not only that, it doesn't need you on the white charger coming to its rescue. They're not, the bride of Christ is not a damsel in distress waiting for you, the white knight, to come rescue them. They recognize that if the world is to be transformed, the people of God realize it begins with them, not with the elders, taking responsibility to lead in the arena God has placed them in. Where's your job? Where's your family? Where's your home? Where's your neighborhood? Not waiting for their elders to tell them to do something or encourage them or inspire them. The synagogue was not a biblically ordained form of gathering, though by the time of Christ it was a normal and accepted social structure through which the Jews created a covenant world wherever they went in the earth, both preserving their identity as God's people and drawing Japheth into the tents of Shem, as God told Noah he would, because the world was attracted to the manifest difference God's law made in covenant society. At the time of Christ, they numbered one-third of Roman society, and a huge number of them were not Jewish by genetics. They were Jewish by conversion very powerful thing that was going on um, in the hundred years prior to Christ. The synagogue was the opposite of the temple. The temple and its worship were strictly defined by its purpose as shadows thrown from the substantive reality of Jesus Christ and his church. As such, they were in, the temple was inflexibly fixed in a way that God never intended for his people to be once he gave them a new heart and wrote his law in it. The fixity of the temple is thoroughly appropriate for children who have to have the pedagogue of God's law judging them from the outside through, through authoritarian rulers. And that's why uh, Moses said, this is exactly how I want to build, this is exactly how I want the sacrifices, don't change an inch of it. The synagogue, though, provided not so much a liturgical pattern for the first-generation church, any more than did the Greek theater or pagan temple worship provide the liturgical pattern. What the synagogue pattern was that free-flowing journey from house to house, breaking bread, less structured by ritual and more ordered by the things going on very similarly, similar to what we find in the upper room in the first 30 years of the church. The flexibility and freedom of the synagogue fit the new wineskins God prepared for his new wine so perfectly. No one gave it a second thought to comment on the function of the synagogue. So effectively is the free-flowing worship inaugurated in the upper room and carried on by the apostles that 20 to 25 years into that first generation, that's a long time, Paul addressing the order of worship in Corinth, a thousand miles away, sheds a light on what they were doing there and it is remarkably similar to what they did <clears throat> 25 years before in Acts 1 through 5, where Philip's four virgin daughters prophesy, standing next to old Agabus. He's prophesying there, beard and all. And the people go from house to house breaking bread, and people got healed or dropped dead, as the case may be, <clears throat> all because God was doing something, not because the apostles were administrating some wing-ding, wing growing church. 
the greatest fad in town. It was not what was going on there. Throughout that first generation, the regulative principle of the Last Supper in the upper room was the norm, was the regulative principle. A large meal where people led as they were gifted and the others were admonished by Paul to pay attention to each other rather than each one blithely believing that they had the only contribution worth making or belly worth filling or as the elder, the only one worth listening to and running the show to be sure it's orderly. Order and decency, Paul said, let all things be done decently and in order. Order and decency were an application of Ephesians 5 for mutual submission, not an abstract law um, for the tyranny of Scottish elders 1,700 years later to abstract out what they thought decent order must be, must rationally mean, and then graft their definition of decency and order to a rational perfection, turning the living church of Jesus Christ, rushing from house to house, breaking bread into the ordered rows of a graveyard, presided over by whitewashed tombs, monuments to a once living and infectious faith. With the passing of the apostles, the regulative principle of the upper room worship was abandoned in favor of the more rational organizational hierarchy of official mediators, priests, controlling the mediated, the sheep. With the Reformation, only the theology changed. In other words, they changed how they described it all. The government was adjusted with checks and balances to make it harder for one priest to abuse his power. But the functional priesthood of the leaders remained firmly intact. And with the loss of the upper room, the rejection of the first few chapters of Acts, and the rejection of Corinthians 14, all these were found unfit to apply to the order and worship of the church. The church invented its own form of worship. It sought a foundation and rationale for its practice in the pagan and pre-Christian Jewish world, both the pagan and the pre-Christian Jewish world. The best it's been able to do is point to those aspects of the synagogue, which had nothing to do with its fitness as new wineskin. They pointed to the judicial function of elders at the city gate, neither of which were pointed to in the teachings of Jesus or the New Testament as blueprints for worship or the authority of the elders. They didn't point to, but quietly accepted, I'm talking about after the passing of the apostles, they didn't point to, but they quietly accepted the priesthood of pagan Roman idolatry and the theater as their model and structure of government and worship. In other words, they didn't say, we're going to do it this way because, man, it sure seems to work for Rome. It worked for Rome, and they quietly said, let's just do it this way. And it worked, and so they just sort of didn't say, this must be what Jesus wanted. After 70 AD, the early church laid aside the new wineskins and began their march back into the arms of the pagan forms of authoritarian, civil, and temple rule, entertainment, and organization, forming their worship patterns around them. Within 400 years, they had adopted the entire Roman government civil and temple vocabulary to organize the many-layered church around divine Greek theater of a few actors carrying out a divine ritual before the helpless spectators. It wasn't catharsis that they bring to the spectators of the church. That's what you get in a Greek theater. <clears throat> it was grace. Though this pattern of practice is forbidden in the New Testament and nowhere found in the New Testament church, after Jesus forbade it, they didn't do it that way either, it remains the priestly pattern into the 21st century since that day resting its government, since that day, resting its government on paid mediating experts officiating over the boiled down rituals of faith enshrined in all the books of church order written since the apostles died. And don't blame the pastors. 
the congregations of the faithful will have it no other way. They can come to church, they can get their grace, they can put their minimal effort in, or their maximum effort in, whatever, and don't worry. See that paid guy up front? See all the elders? They will do the heavy lifting. Spiritually. That's a good setup. <clears throat> no wonder Marx called religion the opiate of the people. That kind of religion is. There is nothing to fear in prying loose the teeth of the elite of the elite idea that the church is only protected by strong leaders who know better than the rest of us and go out and fight on our behalf to protect us helpless little Christians. In its place is the confidence that if the leaders focus on building up the congregation only, not running it, not administrating it, not disciplining it, but building it up, discipling it, the least among them will carry on that fight as well as the greatest did in the last 2,000 years. The least among them will be greater than Homosek Tertullian. There's some mixed opinions about him, but certainly pick any saint out of there. The idea of Jesus is that shouldn't be your greatest, that should be your humblest. Each member will have all the tools, because Jesus gave them to him. Each member will have all the tools they need to transform the earth and do greater things than even Jesus. I know that sounds blasphemous to you, and I wish Jesus hadn't said it because it sounds to me like he's being blasphemous. He's just inviting all kinds of like arrogance. But Jesus said, it's good that I'm going away and sending the Holy Spirit because greater things than these you're going to do. Don't think you're living in a world that has to repeat the past. You're living in a world that creates the future. So let your worship be a worship service that creates that future, lays the foundation for it, sends people out to love and serve the Lord. There will be no immature little ones to be swept away when the elders Jesus envisions have fulfilled their office, and to the extent you are afraid they will be swept away, you are confessing, if you are an elder, that you have not fulfilled your office. And that ends section 5 of the Book of Church Order for the Upper Room. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action 
for Christ and His kingdom. 